And before we read it, let me give you one other Luther quote. He said, Let the man who would hear God speak read the Holy Scriptures. These are the words of God. Luke chapter 14, verses 12 through 24. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife, therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry. And he said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city. And bring in the poor and crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. The grass withers And the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. So, Disney has built an entire empire around a particular storyline. It's not theirs, it's not original to them, but it's the storyline of the radical reversal. Think about it. You've got Cinderella. Cinderella is the rejected stepsister who never takes a shower who hangs out in the attic, talks to rats, and all of a sudden, she's literally the belle of the ball, and she becomes a princess and has the biggest castle at Disney World. Like, that's a radical reversal. That's a massive switch. And my youngest daughter was Cinderella merely two hours ago. That's a reversal. We celebrate this woman. Aladdin. Aladdin is the scam artist who lives on the streets of Agrabah, who falls in love slash stalks the sultan's daughter. <laughs> And then he uses a magical genie to trick her into believing he is someone else. And like it somehow works out for him. And somehow we're pulling for him even worse. And then he becomes a prince. Radical reversal. And of course the Lion King. It's the best. We all agree to that. The innocent cub of a king who is falsely accused of killing his father who runs away and we're worried he'll never return and take his place on the throne, but with the help of a very strange monkey and a sassy meerkat and a pig that breaks wind a lot, he is back, and soon he takes his rightful place on the throne. It's a radical reversal. So 
Disney is like killing it with these storylines, and they're and they're just making all the money. And Walt did not come up with this himself. Uh, J.R.R.R.R. Tolkien, he <laughs> he famously said, "There's six R's." I don't. It's not on all the books, but there are six R's. He he famously said, he said, uh, when you hear a fairy tale, or what he called fairy stories, when you hear a fairy tale that strikes a chord with you, it is because that fairy tale is simply a retelling of the greatest story that's ever been told. It's good, isn't it? And the story that, that J.R.R. is talking about, he's talking about the story of Jesus Christ. When a fairy tale strikes a chord deep within, it's because it's a reflection in some way of the greatest story that's ever been told. And so we have that storyline here in this passage by the greatest storyteller who's ever been around, Jesus himself. It's a story of a radical reversal. It centers around this party where you think that those who deserve to be there don't actually get in. And those that you would never expect to be there are seated at the table. It's a radical reversal. So what happens? There's a man who held a great banquet, Jesus says. And when he sent out the first round of invitations, it seems that people accepted and they were going to show up and then they didn't show up. And all of a sudden they come one by one. There's these three excuses that they give. Now, the thing about these excuses is that they are all ridiculous. I heard you giggle through a couple of them. But let me show you just like how ridiculous these excuses are. Inexcusable, really. The first said to him, I bought a field... And I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Now, so this is a lie. This is just a bold-faced lie from the get-go. The day came for this banquet, and this man would have known that this day was coming. And he says, I can't go because I bought some land that I haven't seen yet. And so now I've got to go see that land. Um, That would be like you inviting me to your wedding. And like it's on my calendar six months in advance. And then I, uh, you call me that morning. I don't recommend you call me the morning of your wedding. But like you do anyway. You call me and you're like, hey, are you still coming to the wedding? And I'm like, oh, yeah, sorry. I just bought a house from a guy on Craigslist through text like 10 minutes ago. And I should probably go see it now. Like that is absurd, right? This was more absurd than that. Like no one buys land sight unseen. This is a lie. He's making up an excuse. Essentially what he's saying is that I choose my land over you, Mr. Host. Okay, then there's the second excuse. I've bought five yoke of oxen and I've got to go look at them. Um, So this guy, it's the same excuse really, but now it's animals instead of land. that um, He's bought these animals and he's got to go check them out. This could have waited. He's simply making another empty excuse. Guys, this is like if you ask out a girl... And you're like, hey, would you be up for going on a date with me Saturday? I want to pick you up, take you to, I don't know, where do you go around here? I guess Greenville. Take you to Greenville. We'll go on a date. And she'd be like, I would love to, but that's the night I've got to work on my roommate assignment for next year. Sorry. Like, that would hurt a little. It should, because that's a lie. What the second guy is saying is... I choose my possessions over you, Mr. Host. Okay, the third excuse. This one sounds better, right? I've married a wife, therefore I cannot come. Um, 
At face value, it sounds a little better than the other two, but it's really just not. If you were married and you were recently married, you would be automatically excused in that culture for certain things, like military duty for a year. That's nice. Um, you would be excused for, from certain jobs or whatever. But you would not be excused from going to someone else's wedding. <laughs> like, that's not a thing. And so it's another lie, another inexcusable alibi. What this man is saying is, I choose my family over you, Mr. Host. They're all choosing something over him. And so there's clearly a bigger point to what Jesus is saying here. We need to kind of go ahead and see where Jesus himself is in the story, where he inserts himself in the story. He is the master. He is the Mr. Host. And he's throwing a party. And it's an eternal banquet. And the invitation has been given to the seemingly very important people. The religious people. And many have found reasons to reject his invitation. Most scholars agree that at this point Jesus is speaking directly to the Jews in this parable. And it makes sense because he's speaking to some Pharisees and he's saying, You thought this party was for you. And you're finding reasons to reject the invitation. And they may think, this poor guy who's trying to get all these people to this party, like, pity him. He can't even fill his house. And Jesus is telling them, no, the party is going to go on with or without you. It is you who will miss out. That's Jesus' point. And so it's worth, like, considering, could we be guilty of making some of the same excuses? Could we be in danger for missing out on the invitation, missing out on the party that Jesus is throwing? You know, I would, but I feel like college is the time to explore my options. Like I've got to, you know, I've got to figure out what I really believe and what I kind of like think is true. What faith feels right to me. Be careful. You might just miss out on the party. Or, well... You know, I'm not actually that bad, especially compared to some people around this campus. Be careful. Be warned. The Pharisees thought their seat was guaranteed in God's kingdom because of their own sense of self-rightness, which is actually the very thing that keeps them out of the party. As Jesus says in verse 24, For I tell you, none of those who were invited shall taste my banquet. Or, is it a fear that God may ask too much of you? That you might have to give something up like a plan or a dream or a relationship or your comfort, that your concern is that God might just ask too much of you. Now, isn't it interesting that behind each of the three excuses given here is either a possession that someone is unwilling to risk or a person that they will choose every time before Jesus. Behind every one of these excuses is really just a statement that I choose fill in the blank over you, Jesus. And to choose anything over Jesus or in the place of Jesus is missing out on all that he offers you, which is the idea of this eternal banquet. So it's worth asking, what is it that could keep me out of the party that Jesus is throwing? What are some of the excuses that I give? Regardless, the banquet is going to happen with or without you, and Jesus plans for the seats to be filled. Listen to what happens next. 
I want to start with verse 21 again. The master of the house became angry and said to his servants, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you've commanded has been done and there's still room. And the master said to the servant, Okay, so go out to the highways and to the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. So picture the scene. Jesus is talking to these guys, these Pharisees, and one particularly that he's kind of laser beamed in on. And he's telling this crowd over dinner that people who are truly godly will be doing things like caring for the poor and looking out for the outcast or the broken. And that thought, the thought that that's what religious people should be doing makes them so uncomfortable that one guy literally blurts out in this like awkward silence moment in verse 15. And he's like, blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God. Like that is such a random thing to say in the middle of Jesus teaching. He's literally changing the subject because he got uncomfortable. You ever do that? That's what he's doing. And then Jesus, in his infinite brilliance, takes the thing that now this guy has just introduced, and he says, you're right, let me tell you about the bread in the kingdom. And then he comes up with this parable. So he uses the subject to say, you're absolutely right, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But that everyone is not who you think it might be. So when the invitation to the important people is rejected, the master tells his servants to go out to the streets and bring in the poor and the crippled, the blind and the lame and... So the people described here, very particularly, uh, Jesus has a certain group of people in mind that they would have known. And it would be the people who lived in their villages or outside of their villages that would have been known as the untouchables. Those labeled as the untouchables. Those are those people who were outcast because of their own physical disabilities or sickness or because of their financial setbacks or their poverty. Or the things that they have done themselves or things that have been done to them. And all of a sudden they were separated from kind of the normal society. And they were pushed, literally forced out to the outskirts of the town. And they lived in their own kind of makeshift villages on the corners, on the highways, and on the hedges, and on the edges of the town. And so the ones that the master is now inviting to join him in his important banquet are those who would have never otherwise ever ever dined with such an esteemed host. This would have been unthinkable. Who would have never otherwise had such a seat at a table? Who would have never in their wildest dreams imagined eating such extravagant food? The grace of this host would be to them so unbelievable that they would have to be told over and over and over again, it really is true for you. Come, have a seat at the table. It would have felt too good to be true. And I know this because of the word Jesus uses at the end of that story when he said, compel the people to come in. Not trick them. Not like, make sure you have your answers right. Not anything other than compel them to come in. In other words, they would have to be overwhelmingly convinced that they really were invited because it seemed too good to be true. This is, by the way, what evangelism is all about. I don't know what you think when you hear the word evangelism if you just all of a sudden are ridden with guilt or fear or what it is for you. But what evangelism is, it's not about being an expert in apologetics. 
It's not about having every answer to every question, every response to every counterpoint. Or having a chapter and verse rebuttal for every single concern. Those are helpful tools and there's great studies to do and classes take. Not against those things. Fantastic. But that's not what evangelism is. You know what evangelism is? Compel them to come. Evangelism is nothing more, as someone said, one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. Christianity is a come and see religion. It's a come and see community. And the invitation has been extended to everyone, the insiders and the outsiders, the elite and the outcast, the rich and the poor, the educated and the uneducated. This, by the way, was another hugely important and key teaching of the Reformation. This is why we have the scriptures that we have. William Tyndale is another famous reformer who's mostly known for his work in translating the scriptures into English, which is very helpful for us today. And he gave his life to this end, and he was killed for this. Because of his influence in England, he was arrested, he was jailed, he was convicted of heresy, he was strangled to death, and then after that his body was burned at the stake for translating the scriptures into English. So that we could hold them in our hands nearly 500 years later. This is just a side note. But when when he was killed, reportedly his final words were, Lord, open up the king of England's eyes. Then he died. Incredible. So here's the story though. Before his death, Tyndale was um, translating these scriptures. and, And his heart for why he was doing this comes through in this story. Um, at one point, well, they were translating scriptures because, you know, they were, for, for the most part, hidden from the common man. Like, you had the, this Latin translation that only the highly educated people could read, and that no one was looking at the original texts. And so Tyndale was reportedly um, rebuked by a priest for trying to translate the scriptures into English. And this priest was like, you know giving him grief or whatever for his work. And here's what Tyndale said in response to this priest. He said, If God spare my life, before very long I shall cause a plowboy to know the Scriptures better than you do. You hear what he's saying? He's saying that these words are for those people. These words are not for the highly educated, the people who have their theology down, the people who grew up in that particular place, in that particular family, and now they... These words of Scripture are for those people. It's for everyone. Radical reversal, unbelievable grace, and a gracious invitation to anyone who would come, not for the educated only, or the rich, or the healthy, but for the uneducated, the underprivileged, the poor, and the sick. And here's why I say this to you. I don't know how you see yourself. I don't know where you are on that spectrum and how you see yourself, but do you believe that you've been invited to the table? That the king offers you a forever feast in his presence? The reversal is that the only way to get in is to understand that you don't deserve to be there in the first place. To be the one that would actually have to be compelled because it would be too good to be true. That's the reversal. That's why it's grace. And we are compelled to respond. And I do think this truth, if we begin to really believe it, will bring three things in our lives, among many others. It will bring three things in our lives. One, it will bring tremendous humility. 
You know, our culture and especially the university culture tells you that you are in because you earned it. Congratulations. 85 billion people applied to Clemson this year. And they only accepted 40. And you're the 40. Like, you earned it. Congratulations. I think my numbers are off just a little. But, like, that's the university setting, right? Like, you did it. Because you have this scholarship, because you had this great GPA in high school. You got that co-op because you, 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 you earned that interview because you had the perfect resume. You were part of all the organizations. Like, you did it. You've earned it. But the gospel tells us that you are in only if you know you haven't earned it. It gives us tremendous humility to rest in someone else's work on our behalf. I know this can be a tricky reality to grasp that we are sinners, yet we are loved and we are forgiven. Like that those two things happen at once, that we really are sinners and I, like I still sin, I still have all these problems and I still have all these issues that I have not gotten over yet. Like to see that, but also to see that I really am loved. And this was another issue in the Reformation. Um, that idea that I can be a both-and Christian was a hard thing for the Reformers to work through. And here's Luther. Luther had a great phrase to summarize, it's in Latin, to summarize this reality. And I am not a Latin scholar. Thank heavens for English translations. Samul justus et peccator. Nailed it. Samul justus et peccator. Here's, help me out. Samul, what does that sound like? Simultaneous, right? Simultaneous. So at the same time, simultaneous. Um, Justice. Justice, justice, just. So that's righteous. Simultaneously, righteous. Et, what is that? And, okay, I got that far. So simultaneously, righteous, and peccator is a sinner. Luther put this phrase together. We are, as Christians, simultaneously righteous and a sinner. Both things are true. But when God sees you, if you are in Christ, God sees the righteousness covering the sin. Yes, you will still struggle, and I will still struggle until that day of the final feast. Yet, I am a struggler who has been saved and covered by the righteousness of another. Simultaneously righteous through Christ and a sinner. That brings tremendous humility. The other thing it brings, it's not just humility, but it also brings an incredible sense of security. Since your hope of salvation isn't dependent on what you've done up to this point, it also isn't threatened by what you do now. Does that make sense? Your salvation is not dependent on what you've done to earn it. And so it's not threatened by what you're going to do to unearn it. There's so much freedom and understanding where our security and salvation lies. Because you will still blow it. You will still fail. And we do all the time. But our hope of our salvation is secure because it's anchored to Christ's goodness and not our own. It is kept safe because of God's commitment to our holiness, not because of our commitment. To our holiness. This is the work that he has started. And he will complete. There's so much security in that. 
That came through in the hymn we sang earlier, right? The first one. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. It's a great summary of the security that we have. Number three. Not only does it bring humility in our lives and security in our lives, but it also, you know what it does? It gives us a compelling reason to invite others to the celebration. Jesus invites you to this feast, and then he sends you out to invite others. And that last section really is a call to the church to go. To go. To go to the outcast or the lame or the poor. To go to the nations. To go to the neighborhoods. To go to the dorms or the dining halls. To go to work or to class. Compelling others to come into this banquet. To join you. We are not guilted into sharing the gospel, but we are compelled because of the unbelievable grace that we have received. That is the heart of evangelism, to love and to serve others, to get outside of our rooms and outside of our comfortable circles and to get outside of ourselves to bring the hope of the gospel to the highways and the hedges that God has called us to. And this is true for us as individuals, and it's also true for us as RUF. To look across this campus and to be intentional with asking the question, where can I go? Where can we go as a ministry to compel others to be a part of this tremendous feast, to hear about the unbelievable grace of Jesus Christ, to bring radical reversal to a place like Clemson? But I'll guarantee you this. You will and I will only be compelled to invite others to the party if you're beginning to taste the banquet yourself. And I mean that this party doesn't just start in eternity. This isn't just the eternal feast that begins the day you die. Jesus has already invited you to begin dining at his table now. The party's already being thrown. Are you tasting a little bit of it in your own life? Like, are you seeing where relationships are redeemed? You're seeing where you are struggling with sin, but like you're fighting in a different way than you did six months ago. You're seeing where you've just been very honest with someone and it didn't feel like death. It actually felt like life. Are you tasting the banquet even now? Are you experiencing the feast or even an appetizer in your life? I I really do pray. I pray for you. I pray that your time at Clemson will be a season in which you continually grow into the experience of the celebration. And some of you have never walked into the feast in the first place. And this is an invitation to you. I'm compelling you, hopefully, with the grace of Jesus Christ to come. This invitation really is for you. But that you will, during this time, this very busy time, this very important time, this very frustrating time of your life, this very stressful time of your life, this very joyous time of your life, against the backdrop of all those emotions that you would believe more and more during your time at Clemson that you have been invited to dine at the king's table. That the celebration which picks up in eternity can begin even today. Let me close with this story about a group of guests who understand this idea of radical reversal in a really special way. Um, On a special night about a year ago, around 170 guests showed up to this extremely fancifully decorated Ritz Charles in Indianapolis and they showed up for this party they were celebrating Sarah Cummings wedding 
And it was a beautiful venue where those who were invited came in and they got to know one another and they told stories and they laughed together and they had an incredible night. And they ate like really, really, really well. The menu that night included bourbon glazed meatballs, roasted chicken smothered in Chardonnay cream sauce, and of course huge, huge slices of wedding cake. The whole evening, this party cost around $30,000 for this one night. And the hosts, of course, covered the bill. The guests didn't pay anything. And here's why. This was a celebration of Sarah Cummings' wedding, which actually never happened. Sarah's wedding was called off the week before. And she and her family had made a non-refundable deposit at the Ritz-Charles. And instead of just taking the hit, they came up with a plan of how to redeem the night. And they started calling around to the homeless shelters across Indianapolis. And they invited 200 guests, homeless men and women, boys and girls, who came to this feast. And they had the night of their lives. There's a video of this. You can look up this news story. They're interviewing the guests. It is, it will bring you to tears. It's beautiful. They talked. They laughed. They came from the highways and the edges of town, and they celebrated together. And here's one more thing. Um, They were given clothes to wear. Um, You know, these were folks without means. They were without homes. Of course, they didn't have suits and dresses, but, but clothes were donated from other organizations. So they were able to dress up. They looked beautiful. And there was one guy in the video who said, he said, I didn't have a sports coat to wear but I look pretty good in this one. It's a radical reversal. It's another retelling of the greatest story that's ever been told. But you know what? That party came and went. Like, it was one night, maybe the best night of their lives, maybe the best food they ever ate, the coolest clothes they would ever wear. But it came and went, and they had those memories forever. But I want you to know that there's really a party being thrown for you even now. The invitation has gone out. The host has covered the bill. There is no cost except that which has already been paid for you. You're only in by grace. And you may see yourself and say, I am not fit for that celebration. You need to see that the clothes have been provided for you. Jesus' righteous robes covering you so that you can come in and celebrate with a king. You've been invited. Will you come? And maybe compel a few friends to come along with you. Do you pray with me? Jesus, I, I do pray that the grace of this reality would just strike us so deeply. If we're honest, if we're honest, even for a second, we know we don't deserve to be at a party like that. Help us to get that we are, if trusting in you, simultaneously justified, yet a sinner. And we are seen as right before you only because of the righteousness of Christ, given to us and received by faith alone. Help us to live in that grace through this season. And help us, God, to lift our eyes to look on the highways and the hedges. 
to look across the campus or wherever you've called us to and to see the relationships you've put us in where we might compel others to come. To come and taste and see what we have tasted and seen in the Lord Jesus Christ. Call us into that. We ask for your glory, for the glory of the King alone, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.